We are pleased today at this uh, symposium to bring to you one of the foremost speakers, teachers, administrators in the apostolic ranks. He has a wide range of expertise, and there is a wide range of age in these speakers. And uh, some of these speakers are assembling their legacy. And it is certainly true to say that Dr. Wilson has assembled an impressive legacy. If I were to start now and list all of his professional accomplishments, I would take up a significant portion of his time. I can tell you without question, he is the elder statesman among us, and he has outdistanced all his peers. I got a smile on my face when I looked at his reference section. When I looked, he only had one reference for his 3,000-word presentation, and my immediate response was, he is the reference. We're inviting Dr. Wilson to come. He has his doctorate, his master's, his bachelor's, 40 years preaching, 50 years preaching, speaker of harvest time. The list is so endless to what this man has accomplished in one lifetime. It is exceedingly impressive, and we are honored and happy to have Dr. Wilson with us today. Please come. been told is like that's kind of cute uh -huh. good man thank you sir all of that is kind of like um, uh, as you've heard Chewing gum, you chew it and then spit it out. Uh, all of those kind words because all of us are, <clears throat> I think as Einstein had said, in the bigger scope of things, the difference between what uh, the most erudite of us and the most ignorant of us is like a little scratch in the bottom of a bucket. And so <clears throat> we're all here learning today. And uh, I'm thankful for those who have preceded me and those who will succeed me um, in this meeting and the content of the meeting uh, I find to be very interesting. And, um, and I'm always, my curiosity is piqued as to what questions will be asked. Uh, and so I've enjoyed those sessions also. Um, uh, I enjoyed the libido question. Uh, uh, you got away with that because she had to go outside. That's <laughs> uh, but he did bring many sons to glory. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. He was a man from heaven, heavenly, and Adam was a man from earth, earthly, and they both had many sons. And uh, thank God we're born again, sons of our heavenly father, praise God. 
My subject today is the Godhead. Uh, just before we start here for a moment, uh, the subject of the Godhead, uh, oftentimes people just kind of casually think that we can uh, um, shoehorn it into a few um, explanatory statements, uh, but it, it's really bigger than any of us, and there is, a, there is a need for us to begin where the Bible begins, and so we're going to try to do that today. So let's get into this together. Um, our, my subject is the Godhead. The biblical revelation of the Godhead is a successive unfolding that is arranged along a sequential line. Later disclosures are dependent on earlier revelations. Without understanding these first things, the search to find understanding of the Godhead lacks the necessary ballast to hold it on center. The result is that conclusions are often drawn which are confusing, incomplete, less than satisfactory, or just plain wrong. The beginning point of discussion must parallel the beginning point of revelation. Thorough exploration cannot start with the Incarnation or the New Testament, nor can one begin with Old Testament revelation given to Israel of the God as Elohim or Yahweh. Likewise, even though the creative acts of Genesis 1 provide an early view of God, these also do not provide the necessary earliest thoughts of God. Nevertheless, finding these most abstract, most original understandings of God is absolutely essential to the development of an authentic view of the God of the Bible. There are no shortcuts. In regards to a further, less abstract description, the most accurate may be that, in these first things discussion, that God is light, God is life, and God is love. And then we're going to look at what the implications of that are. Bearing more, particular, bearing more particularity than simply being, these now describe a kind or quality of being. In the context of this study, these are of profound import in that most intrinsic to the very meaning of all three is the idea of proceeding. They are, by nature, processional. That is, a perpetual going out from self to other. Primary to all three is a dynamic continuum of going forth from self outward. So innate is proceeding to their nature that an attempt to use these words while ignoring this element that is the element of proceeding is to collapse and bankrupt their meaning. The very essence of the self of the Bible's God is and expresses outward as light and life and love. These are the basic to all further divine expression. So let's look at them. First, God is light. From the Amplified Version, um, Habakkuk 3 and 4 says, and his brightness was like the sunlight, rays streamed from his hand. And there, that is, in the sun-like splendor, was the hiding place or concealment, is the Hebrew, the concealment of his power. Rays and beams of light are light 
proceeding. Habakkuk explains that the source of the light cannot be seen and is invisible. If you look at that verse closely, it, it, it points out that the source of the light cannot be seen and is invisible. And of course, 1 Timothy 6.16 agrees with that, as well as other scriptures. God does not possess light. God does not become light. God is intrinsically light. To say that God is light is to identify a characteristic that is most basic to his nature forever. It is, of course, the nature of light to radiate, to shine forth, to beam, to travel outward from self. If this characteristic, commonly called shining, is removed from the definition of light, the very meaning of the word light collapses. There's never been a time when God, unfathomable and mysterious, has not been radiating, shining forth, emanating, outraying, expressing, and revealing his otherwise unfathomable and mysterious self. He can only be known where he has so revealed himself. From where comes this shining? It comes from the hiding place of his power. That is, from the place of concealment of his power. So in his innermost being, God is at once concealed and revealed, disclosed and undisclosed, visible and invisible. It might be said that the self of God is invisible and unapproachable in his essence, but visible and approachable in existence. This personal revealing is identified by John as the word, the logos, thought, expression, concept, who is the light of the world, John 1, 5 through 9. It is not an accident that the identity of the word, I'm talking about in John 1, it is not an accident that the identity of the word is quickly and inextricably tied to the light. As the word, he is the eternal outbeaming of the invisible God. As the light, he shines light on the world in order that it may see itself. Hence, the world receives enlightenment. His very countenance is described as the sun at its very brightest. That is, the sun shineth in his strength. And that is directly of, of Jesus Christ. God emanating as light is not limited to physical light, but also includes enlightenment and illumination of the rational mind and spirit of man. And, of course, light also possesses a moral dimension. This is also a divine outgoing to man cognitively and morally. Secondly, God is life. Life is, in its very nature, outward bound. And it is an unbroken stream of the unexpressed becoming expressed through relationship with one's world and environment. We oftentimes call this learning, we learn, but it is uh, a relationship that is an ongoing development with one's world and environment. It's one's going out from self to one's world. First, individual life without a world is impossible. Elemental examples are breathing, eating, drinking. Second, 
Man without his world has no meaning. Meaning is bound up in the procession outward into one's world and life being lived in the context of one's world. Divine life is underived and independent. All other life derives and proceeds from divine life. That there are forms of life in the universe points towards divine life going from self to other. In addition, that life is sustained in the universe also points toward a God that is going out in an unabated continuum, that is, of maintaining the universe. The definition of life collapses when outboundedness is removed. Herein is a primary reason for the special designation of God as Father, the seminal source of all life, the universal progenitor. Included in the meaning of Father is not only progenitor, but also ongoing nurturer and sustainer of all that from him derives, which is all life and all things in the universe. God maintaining the world is God going out in sustaining action. From this are deep and unavoidable implications, knowing that God is not only life, but is also sentient, conscience, and self-conscious, He's conscious of everything and he's conscious of himself. Makes unavoidable a relational situation between creator and created, including the consideration of covenantal rights and responsibilities in the relationship. An alive God profoundly complicates attempts to assign him status as an inanimate object. Further, a God who is love makes impossible the effort to view him as static, silent, unfeeling, or unknowable. While one is observing him, the observed God is observing the observer. And depending on the mindset, heart of the deserver, he is moving toward or away from the observer. And this is because God is love. God is also love. He goes forth as love. Many of the things said above concerning light are equally applicable to God is love. He didn't become love. The Bible says he is love. He is intrinsically love. Further, love, to a much greater extent than light, includes feelings, relationship, fellowship, bonding, community. This is a divine outgoing affectively, that is, with feelings. God reveals himself to the heart. A primary characteristic of love is that it seeks other. Its very nature is to go out, to proceed outward from lover to beloved. Love's nature not only proceeds, but also seeks to bring other back to and into itself. God always, forever, unchangeable, has been going out from himself from everlasting. Nothing more starkly reveals the ongoing proceeding of the invisible God than the declaration that God is love. God loved the beloved before the foundation of the world, which the beloved would inhabit, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. The necessary responder to divine life and love is human life and love. God, being by his very nature life and love, and man being made in the image of God, presupposes that the key to finding such a God requires human life and love. 
Such a covenantal coming together will then be in nature an affective encounter. Knowing the God of life and love is a domain of relational interpersonal encounter. Affective abilities are not only the faculties of choice, but are the required faculties for such knowing. The reason I put that in there is because there is such an aversion to Pentecostals' affective love uh, in our worship and in our expression to God that is considered to be extreme by evangelicals and by people who are uh, dominated by the scientific method who thinks everything has to be objective and that emotion is something negative. We are totally the opposite of that. We're not even sure that, that God can first be known objectively. And we know that to, be, to know him in reality is subjective, is affective, affection, love. And so this was a little uh, counter to that. Those who doggedly deny the right, honorable, and necessary place of affectivity as the core element of human knowledge of God will simply continue to meet frustration and or deception in their pursuit of the divine. Even more telling is the declaration that God so loved the world. As object of love is here again revealed, God proceeds. Loved is an action verb out from self to the world. All divine creation and creativity are products of the dynamic processional character of love. Dynamic processional character of love. The primary trait of this action is giving. Giving is love's first action. When love gives, it is to one degree or another the giver giving himself. God's loving the world illustrates this truth as John records, for God so loved the world that he gave. Giving is perhaps the most unmistakable form of going out from oneself. God is love which proceeds outward from self to an object. Because its generating source is love, the proceeding action here takes the form of giving. The most singular form of giving is passionate love in an inmost attempt to make oneself known and available to the object of love. This giving expresses the deepest invisible thought and feelings of the giver. Numerous scriptures reinforce the fact that God continues to proceed from himself outward to his people in love. Because the love of God is shed abroad, that is poured forth, gushed out, run greedily, spilled, distributed largely, all which has the idea of going out from. But God commendeth his love toward us. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed that means to reach out, to grant, to give upon us. But God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. Ephesians 2 and 4. There's many other scriptures that we could use. By describing God as the word, logos, thought, concept, expression, visibilization. John uniquely and incisively in language unused in the Bible heretofore describes ongoing divine procession to its maximum form and in a way that advances radical new possibilities for understanding the Godhead. His presentation stands in perfect solidarity with earlier Old Testament revelation of a God whose very nature is to self-disclose. John here identifies this eternally ongoing self-manifestation of God 
as the word. Whereas divine essence is invisible, the locus of the divine personal self-disclosure of that invisible God is forever only the word. Now, why do we choose the word word? We didn't. John chose the word word under the anointing of the Holy Ghost. The word is the perfect, unmediated, all-pervading, invisible God. The word is the perfect, unmediated, all-pervading, invisible God mediated to the world with no diminishment of that unmediated perfection by the mediation. In other words, God showing himself to the world is not something different than God himself. Only through the word is there personal knowledge of God. Further, the word is not a temporary reduction of divine immensity, nor is this a mode by which divine self-revelation is temporarily undertaken, doesn't come and go. Nor is the word a portrayal of God temporarily stepping down his being in order to encounter creation. Nor is the Logos a divine split personality or a second God or a demigod or demiurge or other individual being or something or other apart from the essential invisible God. The word is God expressing, going out from self to other. God addresses his word to man by giving it human form without any diminishment of its divine reality as God himself speaks it and in which he enables man to hear his word and respond to it without any cancellation of his human mode of being. John reinforces in unmistakable language that the biblical God from the beginning and forever is a God who emanates, a God who proceeds from himself, a God who goes forth to other and discloses himself to all that lies outside of himself. God is forever and at once both concealing and revealing. Essentially invisible, the divine nature goes out and makes itself known. Only God knows all of God. The visible of a human self does not know all about its invisible self. We don't even know all about ourselves, much less all about God. In contrast, God is eternally and essentially both thought and utterance, concealed and revealed, concept and expression. There's only the God who expresses unendingly, quote, whose goings forth, notice that, whose goings forth, that's proceeding, going out from himself, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. There was not a time when God was not proceeding. This continual expressing is as perpetual as the one who is the expressor expressed. The thing expressed is the expressor himself expressed. While there is in God always an immeasurable reservoir of being which remains hidden, there is nevertheless nothing beyond the word that is more eternal, more permanent, and more purely God than the word. The divine self-consciousness of the word is the self-consciousness of God. Not only is the expressed word fully God, but is also fully aware of everything identified as God that is unexpressed. This is part of what is meant in the declaration, I am that I am. The word is not another, not a second or a lesser or a temporary, but is the one and only God forever expressed and expressing, revealed and revealing. 
The divine invisibility forever and always remains poised towards and engaged in self-revelation. The immense hidden God abides or presences constantly and unendingly in the word which is the sole personal expression of himself. This ongoing self-revealing does not deplete the unrevealed of God. In Christ, the unmediated divine essence is mediated, but unchanged by that mediation. Further, this going out is not of divine whim or caprice. It is not a decision or simply an act of divine will. Rather, it is organic to the very essence of divine being. There is no biblical God who reposes or ever reposed in non-relational, static solitude without movement from within himself outward. John thus informs the reader that the word, that is, God going out from himself in a personal and relational fashion, is not a later addition to an original God who is formerly unknowable. God's ongoing self-disclosure of self to the world is not merely a divine choice, but is native to divine being. As already seen, the goings forth of God did not begin at Bethlehem, but are the nature of God from eternity. This divine self going forth is an eternally unbroken continuum from of old, from everlasting, and is the essential self of God proceeding outward. That the word became flesh requires that there was a word to become flesh. Some think of this word minimally as being only God's word, that is a verbal statement declaring the future incarnation. Others believe the word, while not human, was God actualized in knowable form and personally relational. This is how God is seen in the Old Testament. It is God expressed and expressing that John identifies as the word. However, the word made flesh at Bethlehem does indeed mark a profound and breathtaking broadening and acceleration of God's personal self-revealing. Western language is deeply grounded in a subject-object matrix. Everything to us is black and white. Consequently, there is awareness of areas of inexpressibility and a certain anticipation of the coming of a glorious language of being, a word that consummately reveals the invisible that it manifests. Of necessity, the requirement of such a word would be an expression with absolute consolidation of verbal and concrete creating permanent coherence of invisible and visible. In an exclusive category with select dignity, such language could no longer be identified as a word, but would necessarily be distinguished as the word. This leads to a dramatic heightened awareness of the high and sacred uniqueness of Jesus, for he is exemplar with finest precision of this language, not of description, but of being and is the perfect self-statement of God. With zero qualification, he can say, he that has seen me has seen the Father. The word is the unapproachableness of God made approachable. It is the invisibility of God and is the God known only to himself made knowable to creation. The word is God creating the world and God in the world and God sustaining the world. The most profound occurrence in the history of the universe is and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The word made flesh is an expression which derives from the very inmost being or bosom of divinity. In John 1.18, which talks about being in the bosom of the Father, 
Bosom can also be translated as bay. The idea is of divinity as a vast, limitless sea, and Jesus, the word, as the bay. That is, the point at which the unformed infinite ocean meets and takes on the identifiable form or shoreline of the world being encountered. John 1.14 is a continuum of the eternal divine whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. However, Bethlehem's birth does mark a dramatic and radical broadening and acceleration of that continuum. The ultimate personal expression of the invisible God as knowable occurs in that the eternal express God is now made human. This intervention alters the course and future of the universe. God actualizes his invisible self in flesh while also remaining invisible. He is at once concealed and revealed. This thought, which is self-expression, pinnacles in the declaration, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. God revealed is God's self-objectifying, made knowable, identifiable. The word is the thought, the expression, or concept of God. This outgoing of God is God's thought of himself graciously conveyed to man. It is his expression of divine personal self to that which is outside of that self. It is God conceptualizing himself. It is God's statement of himself. However, in such divine utterance, there is no distance between speaking and being, between verbalization and actualization. God's word is God's very expression of himself. Thus, the human life of Christ does nothing to alter the pure divine identity of Jesus as the word, as the only expressed personal self of the invisible God from eternity. There is not, nor has there ever been, another way to know God other than through the point at which he has made known his invisible self. Jesus Christ is the eternal word, the only personal revelation of the invisible God. There was never another. Bethlehem is the entry point at which the word becomes flesh, as human son. This self-disclosure, the word, becomes Christ the man without any reduction of divinity. This is Jesus Christ who as essential God in unrestricted deity and as man of man in unqualified humanity constitutes in the unity of his incarnate self, the person, the invisible and invisible of God. Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God and is the express or exact image of God's person or essence. Hebrews 1.3, that would be better translated essence than, than person. He is the uncorrupted, visible realization of the invisible God. Because he is truly so, one knows God by knowing Jesus. Jesus can thus say, he that has seen me has seen the Father. God can be seen only where God has disclosed himself and where this disclosure is not obscured. Jesus Christ is this unobscured disclosure. He is the sole geographical location in the universe where the infinite invisible God is revealed fully in concrete form and finitely in matter as human. Though fully human, Christ is first and forever the word which is God that was made flesh at Bethlehem and lives under the existential conditions of finitude as man, the son of God. Thus to worship Jesus is not to worship a temporary phantom. Rather, it is to worship God in the sole manner humanly possible, that is, through God's self outraying, the shining forth of himself, the radiance, 
from eternity now become flesh and entering earth life as a member of the human race. While the human earthly house of Jesus was, like all humans, existentially conditioned and thus temporary, Jesus remains as the Word, the only divine, eternal, invisible God expressed from forever. The face of Jesus Christ is the only face of God. Thus he could declare that he was before Abraham and that he is, I am, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, the Almighty, and the first and the last. It should be restated that Jesus is in no way should be thought of as temporary thing or mode nor something merely beginning at Bethlehem and ending at final victory over death as described by Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 26 through 28. That such a view is unsatisfactory is obvious. Instead, it is Jesus, carefully described with great specificity that John sees in Revelation chapter 1. While viewing Jesus, this glorified Jesus speaks to him saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. The phrase, I am the first and the last, clearly describes his eternal deity. The phrase, he that liveth and was dead, clearly describes his authentic humanity. The phrase, I am alive forevermore, clearly emphasizes the eternality of both. You now see why he is the esteemed elder statesman. Thank you, Brother Wilson. I'd like to begin this question and answer session with a question from the moderator asking you to elaborate on some of the <clears throat> comments on page number 11. A number of times he is referred to by you as human due to the fact that he was unique in his fatherhood did not, was not procreated by the descendants of Adam, but rather as the Holy Ghost overshadowed him and the Virgin Mary. Can you give us a little clearer vision of his humanity? For example, did Jesus have a human spirit? If so, where is that spirit and how would that relate to his second Adam status? Next question. <laughs> you are supposed to pitch a softball first. That was a 102 mile an hour hardball. Yes, I think Jesus was completely human in his humanity. I think he had body, soul, and spirit. The Bible says of him, that will not leave my soul in hell. Another place it says his spirit was troubled within him. And we know, of course, that he had a body. So I think he was completely and totally human. Um, I, would answer, I would answer about the, the present and future state of the human soul and spirit of Jesus um, uh, two ways, probably. One would be that um, I think that is included this is not a cop-out. I'll try to give a little more, but I think that is included in 1 Timothy when he says, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. And then he, of course, was seen of angels. He was preached to Gentiles. 
received up into glory. Uh, so I think there is, there is still mystery involved with how that is. Um, there's a lot of, I just mentioned there at the end, 1 Corinthians 15, 28, which talks about the giving up of sonship into eternity future. And um, some people think that there will be no Jesus in terms of humanity at that point. Um, I don't think that's true. But I think that uh, there is a place, and this gets real abstract right here, there is a place where humanity becomes one with divinity. It is absorbed into divinity because it is so perfectly divinity, which is what he was in the first place when he says, he that has seen me has seen the Father. Uh, even you and I, we are made in the image of God. We are, we are fallen from that right now, so we, are, we exist different than we are essentially. We, we can see, and therefore we try to cover that gap. We call that gap potential. So we, we see that we have potential. Well, we only have potential because what we are is less than what the image of God is that we know we were meant to be. So we're all striving for the, for the perfection of the stature of Christ, and none of us have that perfection at this point. However, theoretically, if one was perfectly without sin and, and reached our full and optimum potential to be whatever the image of God is for you and I to be, and it may be a little bit different for each of us, but if we all, if we all this is theory, if we all reach that, then in effect, not in the same way Jesus could say it, but in a true sense, we could say, he that has seen me has seen the Father because we would be the exact 100% pure reflection of God. At that point, what happens to what now is a differentiation between us and God, that which is material and so forth. So those are things that, that we don't know. But uh, we have not reached that. However, when you look in Scripture, the Bible does say we do not know what we're going to be like, but we do know we're going to be like him. And so what is the implications of being like him? I don't know, but I want to try it. Amen. Amen. Outstanding. Amazing. All right. Questions from the audience. Yes, sir. Right here on the front row. I have a question related to the dispensational manifestation of the isness of God. To the extent that the questions were asked by Gideon, where be all the miracles? Same of God. Same question sort of was asked, and they limited the Holy One of Israel. And then when you come to the Christian or Jesus era, the question, uh, Jesus couldn't do any mighty works because of their unbelief. So, and I've been dealing with this issue, as, again, as a practitioner in the past. God, in all of his isnesses, in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, still subjects his outgoingness 
to the condition of the mind and the attitude of man. And so the question is, does, why does he do that? And dispensationally, does he differentially manifest himself to us in diverse manners? Um, well, first of all, I think that the, the revelation of God is obviously uh, progressive. For example, I think that, that it's, it's clear in Scripture that God is light and life and love, that he was manifesting himself from eternity. It's not a switch. <clears throat> it's not a switch that he turned on. It is his nature to be light and light shines. So there's the outgoingness of God in light and love and life. Um, however, that outgoingness takes a, a lot of forms before it's over in terms of you see the outgoingness of God in Genesis 1 and 1. He creates. So that's, that's an outgoing of God. We can see God through creation kind of indirectly, but we see, we see God through his acts, in other words, and we see God through um, different ways that he manifested himself in attempting to make himself known. He does, I, I think you're right, he does, uh, when it comes to an individual or even a, a group basis, he does manifest himself um, to those who want to see him. And he does subject that manifestation ultimately uh, to the desire of man to know him. And so uh, why he does that, I think, I mean, I'm just talking. It's like the little boy, his, his mom said, uh, are you listening to the preacher? Um, and while he's talking, he said, nah, he's just preaching. So, uh, so, so uh, I think that God does manifest himself to man. And I think that that is, the, the extent of revelation does depend upon man's response to that. Did I answer that? It was kind of a two-part question. I got the first part. With all of his majesty of who he is, and mystery is unrevealed majesty. Oh, yeah. I was going to answer that. Yeah. Yeah, I got it. I got it. Um, yeah. <laughs> I got off on the little story, and I lost my train of thought. If I keep doing this right now, I'm going to lose it again, so I got to get through that right now. Um, uh, because this is the best answer I can give. Because we're made in the image of God, and, and uh, gods are not forced to do things, he does not force us. And that's what makes him subject to man in terms of how much he will reveal to man is that he doesn't cross that. He doesn't coerce and force us, which is one of the reasons why you can't ram the gospel down people's throat. Center section, four tables back. Um, the word Godhead bugs me. 
And I know confession's good for the soul, but bad for the reputation. But um, it's an archaic term. And could you define uh, define better uh, as in Colossians 2 and 9, where the King James says the fullness of the Godhead uh, dwells in him bodily. Was Godhead there referring to the divinity only because of the statement that it dwells in the body as kind of a separate term? Now, I believe Jesus is God, <laughs> but the God has, it kind of bugs me because it's not a, a, a purest Greek term. Thank you. Well, Godhead, uh, I just, while you were talking, looked it up in the dictionary. <laughs> the Godhead is the essential being of God, the supreme being. Didn't you know that? <laughs> so I'm, that's what some secular humanist said that wrote the dictionary. But anyway, um, uh, I, when it says Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead bodily, uh, yeah, I think that's a really important scripture because there is no body in eternity, past, present, or future, that is God. But if you want to see God in a human body, you're going to see it in Jesus Christ and no other. That's it. Center section, right next to the gentleman that just spoke. We'll get a stereo question here. Yes, uh, I just want to ask you a question, and that is, uh, I was coming out of the prayer room yesterday, I think it was yesterday, or, Friday, or maybe Sunday morning, I came out of the prayer room, and I was walking by this little tiny young lady, and she was talking to her mom, and she says, Mom, is that God? And she was looking at me. And I, I, I turned around to the mom and I says, just tell him that I'm his son. And, uh, but what I was wondering, brother, the question is, what was, what do you think she was seeing as a little child? As a, did she see the light that was from the Holy Ghost that was in my life? Or that's the question I want to know. You should have said, Oh, ye little girl. <laughs> no, you shouldn't have. You, you shouldn't have. I was just kidding. I think the short answer to that is, is that we are the body of Christ. And to the extent that we are full of the Holy Ghost, people can see the Father. Um, and uh, ideally, and again, it's hypothetically because none of us can reach it in our fallen state and the Bible lets us know that, but ideally when someone looked at me, they would never see anything but Christ. But sometimes, unfortunately, they do. <laughs> Amen. On the far side, Brother Haddon. <laughs> 
Thank you, Brother Wilson. I have been waiting for your class alone. Um, you referenced Torrance, and I had a major question that I would love to see clarification. Torrance deals with uh, revelational theology, and I'll quote from this talking about how you, you bring out the processional dynamic of God, revealing himself, self-disclosure. And he quotes, and I quote from one of the works of his, rational interpretation only takes place as we subordinate our subjectivity to God's objectivity and allow God to be his own interpreter. When you talk about the procession of God in light of 1 Corinthians, I believe it's chapter 2, how much of a role in the concept of the Godhead the self-disclosure of God, how much of a role does spirit infilling play in that self-disclosure? So in other words, somebody that would abjectly deny the fundamental tenets of what we believe is spirit baptism, how much can we truly know God in his self-disclosure divorce from that experience? Does that make sense? Yes. Uh, well, first, I fully agree with the, with the quote that the subjectivity of God is impossible to see, but it is objectified, made knowable through the word which has become flesh, which is Jesus Christ. I agree with that 100%. Secondly, um, I don't think um, God can be seen in somebody except maybe in the most obscure of ways that does not have the Holy Ghost because God is a spirit and the human spirit is dead in trespasses and sins. So there is no, it, it's dead. And so until it's ignited or quickened, as Paul says, um, or at least the English version of Paul says, until it is made alive, um, it can't reflect God because solical nature of man is not a reflection of God except in an indirect and impersonal way in that um, uh, it's able to think. But to know God personally, affectively, relationally, it comes through people's spirits being ignited through the spirit of Christ the Holy Ghost is certainly the Spirit of Christ. That would be hard to disagree with when you recognize that it is Christ that is the resurrected Spirit, and we have the resurrected Spirit in us. What was resurrected? Our human spirit is resurrected, and it's resurrected, and it's brought to life. We are buried with him in baptism. We come out to the newness of life, Romans 6, and so that is the only way. This is why I don't understand why denominal people, I understand why, but I don't in the context of this conversation, why denominal people and others would insist that you cannot receive the Holy Spirit baptism, and then others would insist that it's not necessary to receive the Holy Spirit baptism, which includes numerous so-called Pentecostal groups, when the Holy Spirit baptism is the reception of the, the, the quickening spirit within man. It is that, and we could really go off here on a lot of stuff, but um, that's where I think the Holy Ghost is the only way that God continues to proceed for people to know him in a personal way today. That's what gives the church such importance, is that it is the, it is the church's body. 
it is the only geographical, spiritual, sociological, psychological point in the universe that people can meet God is in the church. Now, if that doesn't make the church something really, really special, then nothing in the world is special. This is, this is why what we do has such unspeakably sobering and grave uh, import. This is, there is, there's nothing conceivably in, in the world that has anything to do with the weight of importance of what we're doing as a church of Jesus Christ. It's because his spirit's in us and we become his body. From a personal standpoint, Reverend Wilson, let me just say your presentation is amazing, tremendous. Oh, you're kind. And uh, I'm not saying that lightly. Two of the three elements that you introduced to us are biblically founded. The third is an obvious conclusion. God is love. God is light. Therefore, he is light. From the standpoint of Micah 5 and 2 that you referenced on page 10 as well as other places, is there any way you can help us with your studies we all understand going forth forever. Our difficulty is that going forth from everlasting. It's the backward drift. Our minds have a difficult time comprehending no beginning, that there never was a starting point. Is there any way you can help us with that from everlasting? Yeah, How well, do I quantify that? Yeah, first of all, there is no starting point with God. So we can't erase that frustration that we can't grasp that. And saying that there was a God, but he didn't emanate, we still wouldn't erase that problem because he's still a God from eternity. But, it, but the, the reason I emphasize so strongly and tried to corroborate that emphasis that God emanates from eternity is to, is to create an unbreakable understanding that the word is not separate from the invisible God and all of the language that was used is to reiterate that scripturally and this is you, you can't read scripture and, and disagree with this what this part of the presentation is that uh, because this is where people get off into now when we said the Godhead you may have thought I was going to uh, uh, describe why persons is wrong or how persons is this or how per you got to go back it's like Brother Adams and others have mentioned all of that is way too far down the line to start a discussion of the Godhead you have to go back to the original part and Micah 5 2 is the scripture that does that that said his goings forth are from everlasting there's many other scriptures that shows he is from everlasting but it's an important note to note that his goings forth are from everlasting. And so that goings forth is the expression of myself, like the word is an expression, it's an utterance, it's an expression of myself. And so um, when, we, when we see this, we begin to see that, that Jesus was not a second person in the Godhead. Jesus was not a phantom. Jesus was not some temporary uh, uh, anthropomorphic expression of God. Jesus was God outgoing from eternity, become flesh, entering the world of existence, of existential finitude, which is the most incredible
incredible, breathtaking, staggering revelation in the world is that the creator of the universe entered the world of man and became man because of love. And we become a part of his body. I mean, people that backslide, I mean, backsliding is stupid. I mean, to have what we got and to be as unworthy as we are, how, how in God's world can we do except fall at his feet and praise him? Amen. He's worthy. Amen. Brother Tom Dehoff. Uh, first of all, Brother Wilson, or Dr. Wilson, I want to compliment you and thank you, thank you for delivering the most succinct theological and philosophical description of God and God as Logos that I have ever heard. God bless you. I have found that much confusion about the Godhead has arisen from the inability and frustration in the effort to delineate the divine and human natures in Jesus Christ. Could you agree that the type of the meal offering is described in the Old Testament of the fine flour mixed with the oil and baked is a very simple, and I emphasize simple, example of the fusion of divinity and humanity that the two ingredients are combined and fused and so cannot be delineated because they are an integrated matrix and thus that both divine and human activity were exhibited by Jesus Christ. I would agree 100% that um, it is impossible, nor did the apostles try to make that delineation. In fact, it's almost like they may not have done it consciously, but it's like the Spirit worked to keep you from being able to make that delineation. Because words are used, for example, when they came to take Jesus, when the guards came to take Jesus, and, and he said, whom seekest thou? And they said, we seek uh, Jesus. And he said, I am. That was divinity. And then when they ask again, whom seek ye? Uh, when, when he asked again, whom seek ye? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. So the God that just blew up the whole meeting place with an earthquake, the writer did not take time to try to differentiate and say, well, it says Jesus of Nazareth, but the guy that just caused the earthquake is really Jesus, the, the word, the God of heaven and earth. The God. He didn't do all that. And, and, uh, and you can find place after place in the New Testament where it's like it, purposely uses words that would apply to his humanity in situations that specifically are talking about his divinity. And I think the reason is exactly what you said, um, Pastor Dehad, is that you, you, you're not, that's, that's territory, that's the inner sanctum of a, of a temple that's not our business. And, and it wouldn't matter if you're Trinitarian or oneness. Nobody, nobody could do that. 
Here's a place where the Trinitarians have a problem with that. Did God die on the cross? Trinitarians uh, have a distinct issue and disagreement among themselves of whether God died on the cross because the Son is God and the Father is God. We don't have much issue with that. It seems pretty simple to us. You know. All right. I think it would be great to have a question from Southern California. Yes. Paul, liberal-minded Southern California. In light of uh, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting, in Hebrews 1 and 2, it says, God, who at sundry times in diverse manners, spoke to us in these last days by his Son, by whom also he made the worlds. Uh, my question is, uh, there has been an aversion and even kind of a pigeonholing, uh, afraid to discuss the outraying or the going forth of old uh, as the Son of God because of Galatians 4.4. 4. Uh, when fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son made of a woman. And my question, the perplexity I guess that I've seen is, the, in a few places the Scripture plainly says that God made the world by the Son made the worlds and is there is there a possibility that the distinction of the redemptive work of this outgoing God uh, was when he took on flesh but that he always in his going forth would have himself known as uh, or the visible aspect that Abraham saw and different ones saw as the son of God. Um, because in his essence, he is infinite, eternal, omniscient, all places at one time. And uh, so that is my question. Is the distinction robed in flesh? Uh, and are we, uh, do we find ourselves, and I've pondered this, uh, running from eternal sonship because it was equated with Trinitarianism uh, and yet missing something there that is plainly stated a few times. Yeah, I think that's a perfect example of what we were just talking about. That uh, the Bible did not spend time worrying about using the term son for the one that created the worlds because the son is the one that was created the worlds, but he wasn't human son when he did it. He was God expressed from eternity. He is the only face of God there ever would be. And as such, he is the one, John 1 and 3, all things are created by him. And it goes ahead and says the, the him that is the all things are created by in 114 says and it, it, that, that him was made flesh. And so when it says son, it's not implying because we know he became son at Bethlehem. The word became human at Bethlehem. Prior to that, you find these anthropomorphic expressions of God in the Old Testament, but that is not God made human. That is God appearing human, but he's not made human. He's made human at Bethlehem. But the scripture is not, it's left up to the reader to understand that when he says the son made him, that you understand the son was created at Bethlehem, but that Jesus is the same one that said before Abraham was, I am. 
That could be equally confusing to someone who doesn't understand the principle that I'm talking about right now. He didn't mean I am as the human son at the time, but he didn't stop to explain that, which is exactly why they went berserk and had a fit because they thought this man was saying that he was before. But Jesus didn't stop to explain that because he's speaking there as the divinity that he is. So I think the terminology is used in the New Testament very loosely and very carelessly and it's kind of like if you don't like it figure it out and so that's what we're doing today we're figuring it out in the back row Praise the Lord, uh, Brother Wilson. Long time uh, listener to you, Northern Montana. Uh, we get a lot of questions about the Father and the Son. And this, in St. John 4, it says to worship the Father in spirit and truth. And then it says also that salvation is of the Jews. Then we have Ephesians 4, 4, and 5, whatever it talks about. One Lord, one faith, Father that's in us all. So the question is, all through the Bible, it sounds like the Father and the Son are separate. And it's, Jesus is always talking about his Father, like 170 sometimes in the New Testament, he talks about his Father. And uh, it gets confusing to others. I mean, we see the oneness of God, we see the manifestation of God. But to get like these, uh, Trinitarians, they cannot separate the oneness of God from the titles. And, and as the word says, it talks about the Father and the Son. Can you explain? Yeah, my simplest explanation would be the Father is God invisible, the Son is God made known visible. And that God that is made known visible is also a human being and when he speaks as a human being this is old oneness theology right here but it's true when he speaks as a human being he speaks of God as another from himself because he is a true human being but when he speaks as the word there is there is no question I am which is the Bible's full of these I am statements which uh, Brother Treese and others here could validate are much more prolifically found in the New Testament uh, Greek-wise than, than what appears sometimes in English because it's connected with other words. But I am the beginning, I am the life, I am the truth, I am. But those are all I am statements. And so uh, in terms of divinity, the Father is a term used for God invisible and unexpressed and unknowable. No man can come to the Father except at the point that God has expressed himself. That's why no man can come to the Father except by me, is what Jesus said. Because he is the locus, the point, the geographical location in the universe where God made himself visible. Now, the way that many people have tried to answer these questions, and I understand what you're talking about, is through oversimplifying it. Um, and they tried to do this through arithmetic 
or, or mathematical formulas. God one, God two, God three, but it's still God one. But, and so you don't know if you're in algebra or, or you, know, you know, what are we here? Is this calculus or what, what is all this? Uh, but God, you can't do that. The, the, the Godhead is a big subject. And I'm, I'm hesitant to use this word, but it's a sophisticated subject. It's a complex subject. After all, you're talking about the creator of the universe and everything that therein is. You're not going to be able to reduce this and this reductionist tendency that tries to reduce it to numbers is, is juvenile. It's carnal. And most of that discussion that Adams was addressing earlier, that was in the second, third, fourth century, most of that discussion quickly became politicized and it was about who has political power more than any other thing. It really was not a sincere theological search in many cases. It was let's get him. This is how we get him. So we're trying to avoid all that here. And the reason I don't start out there with uh, trying to describe stuff that was created in the second, third century is, is that's a waste of time. That is a waste of time. We must always be careful not just to assemble broken pieces of scriptures, throw them together in some question. For instance, the Bible plainly says, greet your brother with a holy kiss. It Come plainly here, says, forbid, it forbids not. And it, <laughs> the Bible says to greet your brother with a holy kiss. It says, forbid not the use of tongues. And it says, go thou and do likewise. But I personally am going to put those in the proper context. <laughs> so, to just assemble broken pieces of Scripture is in that, an inadequate way to study the Bible. We are down to just about the last five or ten minutes. So, uh, we're going to recognize this brother. And then if we have time, you'll be second. All right, right here. I really love your presentation. Most of us apostolics, when you mention the subject Godhead, we are prepared to deal with the, the whole thought of, of Trinity and oneness. What you did for us is you discussed it, the Godhead in a different way, and the question comes to this. For example, um, you said God never becomes which helps us. He never becomes life. He never becomes light. He never becomes conscience. He never becomes power. He always is and was. Absolutely. Now, then the outgoingness of God. Now, the, the, um, the outgoingness is the question I have in not a theological student, never been to the cemetery. Uh, seminary. <laughs> Does the outgoingness of God lend itself to the theology of modalism? Limit itself to the theology? Does it lend itself to the theology of modalism? that one in essence, he manifested himself in different modes. Does it? Does the outgoingness uh, nature of God yep. mm -hmm. lend itself to the theology 
There are some who believe that God, mm -hmm. you know, is modal. Modalism? Yes, modalism. Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, I do not consider myself to be um, a modalist. Uh, the, the, in the, the primary meaning of modalism is that God manifested himself in different modes. Once his father, once his son, once his Holy Ghost, and so forth. Which, which I don't, I, I just think it's not a good way. I mean, I, I don't think you're doing something wrong if you, if you do that. But the truth of the matter is, is that Jesus manifested God as Father. The Father manifested himself as Jesus. And there's just a single, with no variation, manifestation of God and Father by far the most complete definition of father would be invisible creator. The father is, is unknowable except as revealed through the word which is the expression of himself. Now I, I can't go further here because our time is up but there is nothing that's created that is not both invisible and visible. There's nothing that is real that is not both invisible and visible in the universe. Anything that is, is at once both invisible and visible. Now that opens up another whole, a whole talk. But, um, and that comes from the nature of God. He is invisible, but he outstreams. He beams, he shines, he is light. He, he goes out from himself, Micah 5 and 2. And he's always, that's always been the nature of God. There wasn't a time when he started doing that and said, I believe I'll open the door and walk out of my house of myself. It, that has always been, his nature's always been outgoing. He is love. He didn't become love. He is love. And the nature of love is to seek something outside of itself. So this, when you, when you see God in this light and you do not allow man-made constructs to frame your discussion of the Godhead. When you do not allow your start to be a defense against something false. I'm not interested in something false. My, my view of the Godhead is not an apologetic against some later development. But usually it's like our brother said here. Usually, that's how we start our, our thought process about the Godhead, is dealing with those issues. But it starts back here. There's only one God. He, he's, been, he's been expressing himself forever. This is why you saw him in the Old Testament. You see him in his creation in, in Genesis 1 and 1. And you see him throughout the Old Testament expressing himself in messages through prophets, anthropomorphic manifestations, and, and, and various other ways as the angel of the Lord in the burning bush said he saw the angel of his presence. Um, that's another little subject, but uh, Jacob said, I saw God face to face and so forth. But that is, that is the outstreaming of God that became flesh. And he became flesh. Bethlehem dwelt among us, brought us salvation. And now that's the bottom, the, the 
descending God, the death, the burial, the going into the belly of hell, end of the journey, going up, glorification, resurrection, ascension to heaven, building the church, and, and as we'll find out tonight with Brother Treese, the calling up of the church into heaven. And so it's, it's, it's one big swoop, and it's not Nike. <laughs> it's a lot better than Nike. We're virtually out of time, but I did promise this young man one more question. If you could be concise, we're limited on our time, but uh, give him the microphone, please, right here in the center section. Yes. This will be our final question before break. Brother Wilson is a bionic man. He needs no sleep, no food, no rest. Any further questions can be addressed to him uh, after this session, but go right ahead. To be quick, uh, just want your thought on it. Um, I am like an ant with the intelligence um, that is in this room. Um, but you had said that the face of Jesus Christ is the only face of God. My, I want your thought kind of on this uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, it says, And when all things shall be subdued unto him, that shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Whose face will we look at, the one put under or the other? <laughs> There's not another. <laughs> the humanity of Jesus will be subjugated some manner but numbers chapter 6 verse 29 26 27 all talks about the priestly blessing that was to be given I think every day from the priest to the people and the priestly blessing included may his face the face of God shine upon you so the face of God Whatever face God has became the face of Jesus. It was Jesus. It was his face, but it was him before he was, before he was human, before he was son. He was simply God's expression, not another from God. And that face is the face that will be there forever. God will only have one face, and that will be the face of Jesus which was a face of God before Bethlehem and will be the face of God after 1 Corinthians 15, 28. Please stand. Give Dr. Wilson a rising applause for an outstanding session.